Welcome to the Plain Sight podcast hosted by Invisible. Invisible Technologies is a fascinating company. Uh, we essentially make complex business problems disappear. So we partner with you, we figure out what your operations are, we figure out what your processes are, we figure out what your team doesn't like to do, and we basically do that better, faster, cheaper. Uh, but this isn't specifically about what we do, it's also the philosophy behind why we do it. So this show really gets into what makes Invisible tick. Uh, who are the key players at Invisible? Who are the key players outside of Invisible who enjoy our work? Um, what are all the things that are going on inside of Invisible? What a podcast does, it allows you to find out things that you normally wouldn't be able to find out. So it's like a fireside chat that's basically decentralized and anybody can listen to it at all times. So we really invite you to uh, listen and subscribe if you really like these episodes. And as always, you can reach out to anybody on the Invisible team. Uh, our website is invisible.co uh, and we're happy to have you here. Welcome to the Plain Sight Podcast. My guest today is Rachel Rubin. She is the COO, Chief Operating Officer of Oviva Therapeutics. So welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you. It's great to be here. So what is uh, Oviva Therapeutics? Oviva Therapeutics is a early stage biotech company. We are developing drug assets that focus on women's health, specifically on ovarian function with indications across IVF, um, different aspects of infertility. Uh, and then our long-term goal is to focus on menopause with the potential ability to push off menopause, expand Whoa. health span in women, uh, and also expand women's longevity. So a really, really interesting organization or interesting goal. And I'm looking forward to speaking about it a little bit more with you today. Yeah, that's, uh, I got a bunch of questions on that. Uh, so pushing back menopause, that's wild. Um, longevity is really interesting. Uh, so let me give my understanding. I don't have a big understanding of longevity. I don't have a big understanding of, of um, the low, latest science. I know there's a bunch of hype around longevity. A lot of people think that we're getting close to the point where, where we'll be able to push off death and become sort of amortal. Um, and, you know, amortal is something I got from Yuval Harari, which says that it's not, we're not becoming immortal because if you get hit by a bus, then you get hit by a bus, you're still going to die. Um, but it's amortal. So the idea is that as long as there's no sort of occurrence like that, that we can just extend our lives further and further and further. Um, so I guess the best question is, is given that you're in this general space, and I know that this is a long-term goal, uh, what is the, what, where does the hype, where is the hype not meeting reality when it comes to longevity? Yeah, great question. So in women, the ovaries age significantly faster than any other organ in life. And what we've seen is that women who enter menopause later in life have extended lifespans relative to women who enter menopause earlier. So we've done some really interesting work in animal models at Oliva that shows that if you can push off menopause, you can extend longevity of animals. And our goal is to look at this in humans. And we're early stage in our work now, still doing work in animals. Um, but that's how we're thinking about and planning the types of research that we're doing today. Super interesting. Okay. And so menopause, if you can push off menopause, uh, it can extend life. So can you go more into what menopause is exactly? If, if that's true, if, the, if the, you can push off menopause, it also extends life. 
that mean it, to me that means that essentially like menopause is sort of an attack on women's bodies as a sort of like a cellular death kind of thing. Um, can you talk about more what what menopause is and like what it does? Yeah, absolutely. So um, menopause is like medically defined as twelve straight months without menses, and there's a hormone in our bodies called anti-malarian hormone AMH in women's bodies. Um, and as you deplete AMH, and when there's full depletion, that generally starts the beginning of menopause. And we know this because we see in women where their AMH is artificially depleted, for example, through chemotherapy, they enter menopause. What we've also seen, what we know, is that when women enter menopause, they unfortunately also enter a period of prior pre-metabolic events alongside other negative consequences for their health. So one example is neurological uh, issues as well, uh, anxiety and other related issues like that. So what we're working on in Ovivon is actually drug assets that modulate the hormone AMH in women's bodies. And by doing so, we expect based on work that we're doing currently and all that historically, we can modulate and impact the time when women would actually enter menopause and what that then means for their cardiometabolic health, for their neurological health, and for other aspects of the well-being, in addition to simply quality of life. And I haven't really mentioned that yet, but it's a really significant issue, right? When women enter perimenopause, when they enter menopause, there's hot flashes. There's lots of other issues that significantly impact quality of life in addition to longevity. Mm. And so the ability to potentially push that off for a period of time or work on other ways to alleviate that in coordination with the work we're doing on our AMH platform to us is a really interesting initiative. Cool. And for my listeners who don't know, so we've got hormones and hormones are these, are these, um, uh, well, yeah, what are, what, like, what are hormones and how do they fit into the general biological construct on, that creates our bodies? Yeah. So hormones are, I don't know, similar to and different types of transmitters in your bodies. Um, I don't know what the specific scientific definition is. I guess I could Google it, but they modulate different, um, ways that our body interacts. Um, and without that, the body doesn't function the way it normally should. So they're quite important and they also change and modulate over time. Um, and so AMH is actually a hormone that is fairly steady over time. So, you, um, you know, you do see a decrease as women age, particularly once they hit kind of a certain period, it decreases significantly. Our hormones will kind of go up and down relatively at random. So you could take a measurement one day and it'll be quite different from the next day. Um, and they all modulate different aspects of how our bodies interact, which is a very non-scientific definition. Yeah, and we've got other hormones, I believe, are things like uh, testosterone, estrogen, um, uh, a whole, whole bunch of different things. And I learned all this stuff. I was in a yoga therapy program, and the yoga therapy, I was taught by a physical therapist. So I was taught all this stuff, uh, and I was very interested, but it's actually uh, exited my 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 memory. Um Okay, that's really interesting. So, and so, can you talk more about like what are you guys doing at a technological level, and uh, if you can, and talking about how? And so, I imagine that there, I've learned that a lot of computation is moving over into this bio biology world because now we can essentially create models of um, of different interactions in the body, and those models can then essentially inform our ability to like create drugs. So they, you know, before going and actually creating this drug, you do a whole bunch of steps before that with computation that can actually like lead to a better understanding and less trial and error. Is that, is that an accurate re representation? 
Uh, it absolutely is. That's, um, I think you're referring to a process called in silico drug design. There's also a component of quantum physics that can impact drug development. In silico drug design um, is exactly what, what you described. Um, and Aviva, we're not working on those types of initiatives today. Um, we have drug assets that we've been licensed from MassGen Hospital. They were developed there by people who, um, I mean, there are, there are co-founders as well, David, David Peppin and Pat Donahue, and they've essentially, they're like the world international leaders on innovation, understanding the innovation body. Um, and those are the assets that we're currently working on today. Yep. Um, but I, um, you know, I've been involved in, in silico drug design. Organizations historically, I think they are incredibly interesting and they are without a doubt driving forward how we understand drug assets that can modulate different aspects of, of humans today in a way that we really never understood before. Um, and the potential for what encyclical drug design can do in really speeding up those initial few years of designing a drug asset to specifically target a specific area of the body. It's incredible. We're receiving years on drug development and that translates into getting drugs to patients faster. So for the scientific community and so good drug design has been incredible. Uh, that's and that's you just entered a whole new world for me, which is essentially that biology and biomedicine and and uh, biotech in general is this just giant field. And there's so many different hormones. There's so many different neurotransmitters. There's so many. There's not a whole bunch of different organs. There's only a few different organs. But uh, um, and so you got this whole world, and then you've got this one thing, uh, AMH that people have already been working on for a long time. And so biotech seems to be kind of taking these Lego pieces and finding these people who have studied these things for years and then kind of sniffing out like, well, what are the commercial applications for this general thing? Is that is that a good explanation of what biotech does and and what you guys are doing? Well, I think it's definitely one way about it. So I think if you kind of go about it in two ways, you could say like, here's a drug asset, what can it target and what can it solve? And we see that a lot when there's actually a drug asset that has gone part of the way through development and then was caused for a certain reason. So let's say that the drug asset went through a lot of work in understanding that it's safe for people to take and understanding that it has fairly low toxicity or off-target effects in the body. And it's tested for efficacy in the specific indication and it just doesn't have the efficacy that was expected. Well, then you could take that drug asset and say, okay, we have a drug asset that we know is pretty safe. We know it's not that toxic um, based on the initial work we've done. So maybe there's another indication where it can actually help out. And you can test it for different indications. Um, and that's a really interesting way to, to actually use a drug asset. Um, and it saves a lot of money because you've done years of work and millions of dollars of work too. Biotech development is so incredibly expensive. Um, then there's the other way to go about it, which is to say we have this issue in the body and first we understand the biological mechanisms that lead to that issue. And then you say, okay, how do we solve this? Um, we've gone about it a little bit differently. Our lead drug asset is actually what we call, it's a recombinant protein of AMH. So we've actually, our co-founders and the drug, the drug that we've licensed in actually is, what's called a synthetic form, so lack of a better mm. term, of the hormone AMH. So it's replacing AMH in the body. So it's a little bit different than a drug that you've developed to turn out a specific mechanism in the body and to change the function of that mechanism, right? So there's drugs you can develop that would block a protein or that would help emphasize um, you know, a specific mechanism in the body. The drug that we have, our lead asset, is different than that, where it's actually a synthetic form of a hormone that then that gets depleted in women over time. Oh, interesting. So you're just as the as the hormone gets depleted, you replace the hormone and essentially push off menopause with that replacing the hormone. That's what we've been working on so far, yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, very cool. Uh, 
And okay, so let's take it over to uh, kind of business operations and particularly for early stage businesses and and how do you actually get people together, particularly in biotech, because it, it feels like, can you talk about what the boundary or not what the boundaries are, what the obstacles are in terms of the FDA in your particular thing and like all of those steps in terms of regulation and everything like that? Is, the, is it a pretty heavy in, involved situation in terms of getting this off the ground? Um, so you asked a few different questions there. So let me try to parse it. Sure. Um, I'll take the last one first. So the first one, the last thing I think you mentioned was about regulation um, as it relates to the drugs that we're developing. The FDA really gets involved when you're thinking about putting drugs into humans. And then they get really involved. So prior to that, um, there's limited FDA involvement. Uh, you know, biotech companies have interactions with the FDA to basically say, here's the work we are planning on doing to ensure that when we enter humans into clinical trials, we want to feel prepared for how we are um, planning those clinical trials. Do you think that this work is sufficient? What advice would you give? And the FDA is really incredible in reviewing a lot of work, both on developing the drug and then also on thinking about how to manufacture the drug, how to test and um, look at different controls of the drug that, that you're working on. Um, so there's interaction with the FDA before you go into human trials. And then there's significant and heavily um, regulated interactions with the FDA once you enter humans. And there's three phases in a clinical trial in humans. Phase one, phase two, and phase three. Phase three is what's called a registrational trial. And then you use that to approve um, for the FDA to review and potentially approve your drug asset through what's called a new drug application. Phase one looks at safety and toxicity. Phase two usually looks at dosing and how much of a dose you'd need to get to achieve a certain effect and also the risk associated with that. Um, and it also generally looks for efficacy. And then phase three is the registrational trial where you take what you've done in phase two and you do it in a, a long, in a significantly yeah. bigger population for statistical efficacy um, at a very high level. So in general, the FDA becomes really involved, but that doesn't really impact the team and, and kind of building the company, right? Because you generally have an established company by the time you're looking at going into humans. So uh, that's the regulatory, regulatory piece. So why don't I pause there and see if there's anything else you want to go into on the regulatory side, and then it can turn back to building a company at early stages. Yeah, no, that, because that, I, in my mind, before you started, you gave me that great um, uh, explanation is that essentially like, I, I thought that it was regulatory played a huge part from the beginning, but it sounds like that you, you create the team, you work towards these things. You already know that that's going to be in the future, that at some point you're already talking with them and everything like that. But, but that's, that's not really the thing that really affects building the team in the beginning. Um, so yeah, what, 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 what it will, what are the key essential elements to building a team within biotech and maybe how does that differ from other organizations? Yeah. And so I'll give just a brief kind of background on my experience before I answer this question that's relevant. Um, I've always had a really big interest in people and in um, business operations. Um, and so the last part of my career, I've spent um, leading business operations for early stage companies in healthcare technology and in biotech. Um, I spent five years at Royvent Sciences, and there I worked on incubating early stage healthcare technology companies, spinning them out of Royvent, and then running their operations. And that included team building, and then it also included building out all traditional operations you would think about for any business. Accounting, finance, IT, legal, HR, and the team. Um, so I built, I built teams at early stage businesses, which is really interesting and fun because 
you're inherently hiring people that are incredibly entrepreneurial, that value equity more than cash to a great extent, that want to work really hard and are really excited about what you're doing, right? There's a really strong sense of mission and a strong sense of culture in the first 10, 20, 50 team members you're hiring. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, and then at Roman, I also had the experience to build out an early stage biotech business, um, which is super different, right? At a healthcare tech business, you're focusing on hiring engineers. Uh, and then at a, uh, at a biotech, you're hiring scientists and chemists. Um, a lot of them actually um, are not U.S. citizens. So you're working a lot more on, on visa issues and considerations. And then also at the biotech, the work you're doing, even at an early stage, well before you think about going into humans, you're generally signing very significant multi-million dollar contracts with contract research organizations or with um, contract development and manufacturing organizations, like a different aspects of the drug asset that you're building. So at a health tech business, it's early stage and you're thinking about, you know, how can I get a good AWS contract? And in a biotech business, in the early stage, you're reviewing like a $10 million contract with a contract research organization, a CRO, and saying like, does this make sense? Like, and uh, ensuring you have the right experts in the room. So at a biotech, you're really looking for very specific types of expertise across different areas of the drug development process. And particularly for an early stage business, often you're working with consultants because you're looking for specific types of really deep expertise that's honed over decades. So these are generally people that have worked at large pharma businesses that would have dozens of ongoing work, um, ongoing drug assets that are all in different stages. So they can pop in really, really significantly at a certain period of time, but their expertise might be limited in how long you need it for because it's quite specific. And so we work with a lot of consultants where we need significant amounts of their expertise and they're truly experts in what they do. Um, but from a full-time perspective, it doesn't make sense for, for them or for us. They'd be bored after everyone. Um, and so that, that's a really incredible part of our business that we're able to work with these really incredible experts. And they're just incredible in how they think about guiding our business. Uh, and also many of them are truly passionate about the drug assets that we're developing. And so that's a lot of fun too. So, um, so. Yeah. What are the skills? Like, how do you differentiate? Because you've got all these consultants who can bring in this highly specific wisdom about how to navigate these large processes and stuff. But you're also building a team of full-time employees. How do you know what type of skills you'll need as the full-time employee? Yeah. So thinking about a full-time employee at a biotech, um, like the initial roles you're really thinking about is someone who can run your research and development, your R&D. Um, and I think this person needs a strong skill set of um, program management, right, to oversee the different programs that you're, at least us at Oviva, we're outsourcing now in our own lab. So um, our head of R&D is someone who can, um, can really oversee those programs. And we work with a contract research organization or a contract development and manufacturing organization to execute on those. But we're very closely involved. So we'll have regular updates with them and, and, and get data on a regular basis as it's developed. Uh, and so we really need someone that has that expertise that can really oversee that program on a very involved hands-on basis. And then you also need someone who can then think strategically and plan out the different types of research that we're doing today to be able to enter the clinic to um, test the drug in humans. And then to think about what that clinical design is going to look like across the different phases I talked about earlier the different types of patients that you might want to look at for the drug asset, the different indications you might want to pursue initially. Um, you know, you need someone who's a really strong biostatistician when you're thinking about your clinical trials. Uh, 
But again, that's for like a specific period of time, right? You need someone who's a strong regulatory expert when you're thinking about entering the clinic and can really guide you on those um, interactions with regulatory authorities and strategically how you pursue it and the types of information you present and then presenting that information. And it's like hundreds of thousands of pages of documents. So it's a significant undertaking. Um, And so that's something that actually has a longer life to it, a regulatory aspect, because you're really wet down from before you enter the clinic throughout until you commercialize the drug asset. Um, And that's like years that you're talking about. But, um, you know, when you're thinking about biostatisticians or when you're thinking about certain aspects of manufacturing the drug asset or preparing that component or developing um, developing the additional ingredients of the drug asset at different scales um, to understand how it would would last for a few months um, or if it needs to be frozen at a certain level or what types of temperatures it could be kept at, how you would transport it. All those decisions, having someone with specific expertise throughout and really guide the manufacturing that you're going through, thinking about those sort of aspects. Those are like different types of expertise that, that you would look for. Mm. Okay. So some of our listeners might be wondering, what does this have to do with Invisible? Uh, and I actually see a very, very clear, uh, well, sorry, well, it's, it is clear to me uh, because Invisible is such an interesting company because they've managed to scale generalists and generalism. Uh, and so a huge part of that is R&D, kind of. It's like R&D, well, they, we are calling ourselves an R&D innovation, I'm sorry, operations innovations company. Um, and so I guess what I could ask before I go more into what exactly, the, how this applies to Invisible is, is what is your take on the question, what is R&D? What is research and development? And so is this a question specific to Aviva or in general, when I think about In general, topic? like and zooming out, like and sometimes the simplest questions are really difficult. Uh, like what, what is R&D? What is research and development? If you're uh, like forgetting biotech, forgetting invisible, forgetting all these different things, what are we doing when we do research and development? Yeah, I love that question. Um, that's so fun. So, so I think research and development is taking up right hypothesis and throwing different potential solutions at it to understand if your hypothesis is correct. Um, it's heavily scientifically driven, whether that's on a biotech or a company. It can involve people or simply processes um, or products. But I think that's um, that's my definition for R&D. What do you think? Yes, uh, very good. Um, and, and, and this is why I like to bring it out because it's, like, it's almost like a platonic form that's out there. When we do research and development, there's something that we're all doing that keeps us all, even though we can go into these different specialties, I really like to be cross-disciplinary and that's Invis- Invisible, such a cross-disciplinary company. They're doing so many different things for so many different people. They're not a traditional company because like in a traditional startup SaaS software, um, you know, you start with a team of 20 to 30 people or no, like five people. You grow to 20 or 30, grow to 50. And that 50, 50 people stage, like all those people are generalists. They can just work on whatever they want and everything like that. Um, and and, at, and and then once you grow to 150, once you grow to 1,000 people, all those generalists basically either get demoted or they leave the company because it's no longer for them uh, and you hire specialists. And Invisible seems like it transcends that, that thing because they've figured out how to scale generalists. Like nobody can replace people who are, who are intimate to Invisible. It, it would just be such a blow to lose them because they're, they're, they've figured out this process for taking a business problem. Doesn't matter what the business problem is. 
breaking it down in processes and then figuring out how to, how to do it better, faster, and cheaper for their clients. Um, and so I guess from your perspective, what, what part of that is R and D or what can we learn about that process from R and D? Does that, is that, does that make sense? Well, I'm just going to give, trying to give my, an answer to it and you can tell me if, uh, if I'm on the right path. So I think, um, so I think what Invisible has, is doing and it has built state is truly incredible. Um, and I think taking kind of the generous model, um, is a really interesting innovation and in and of itself. I also think though that through the generous model, it'll be even, uh, excuse me, Invisible <laughs> is developing specific types of expertise um that are actually like client-based and client-driven um and i think that acknowledging and recognizing and really celebrating that is actually important as well particularly as invisible goes on this path of developing these longer-term relationships with clients um and then the different generalists who are working on each client really get to understand the client, their objectives, their issues, and how to implement the right solutions quite well. Um, and I think there's a general component to that, right? You're doing the same thing, um, potentially across the client in different ways. But I think that there is a specific type of expertise that's being built up within each specific client. And now I think it's actually at the invisible level to think about, you know, how can we take specific learnings here and replicate them across different clients and different types of expertise? And then also, how can we celebrate the expertise that's being developed at the generous level and allow people to build on this, that there's an aspect of people management, people development here. People can really feel like they are developing specific types of expertise because that's valuable to people. Um, but I think it's actually a balance, right? And there's a celebration to be had around kind of this generalist model. But then I also think that recognizing the expertise people are building as they work on client mandates is really important to be doing and celebrating as well. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, very interesting. And there's a lot there. And now I'm actually somewhat selfishly going to ask about knowledge management because what you just talked about, taking one lesson from one client and then applying it to a whole nother field, um, that's a specifically a knowledge management problem. Uh, do you have it from your kind of experience how would you advise to think about this problem of taking lessons from one part and then applying it to another part of the business? Yeah. So I think there's a first component here that's actually like memorializing what's in running. Mm. Um, and I think it's like break that down quite simply. It's like writing down what's been learned, right? Um, and and processes and how, how they're done. Almost like a standard operating procedure sort of thing. Um, you know, how do we how do we operate? Um, and this is a tool that we can take from engineers who I think are fabulous at it. Um, but that sort of practice is in practice, I think, as much as it should be outside of the engineering community. And I think that's really important. Um, so that's one piece of it. And then I also think that there is a balance to be had where you take someone, you don't want them to get bored. So you give them some sort of new challenge with a new client or a new project. But you also then have to allow people the right amount of time to gain that sort of expertise that they need. And part of that is just repetitions with the same client and the same issue, getting to know them quite deeply. Um, so figuring out what that balance is, and it's different for each person, um, but acknowledging that there is a balance, right? If you want to be developing expertise that you can then properly document and move on to kind of the next client and spread it there, you need that to develop. Um, so you want people to be challenged, but then you also want people to have the right number of reps so that they can um, build out their expertise over time. So I think that that transitions over time and changes it. For a portion of my career, I was doing hedge fund investing. And I think I got 
better at it as I had as I had more investments, as I followed different hedge funds that we were invested in for longer periods of time and got to understand how they function better and use that to be a better evaluator in the future of how to invest the institutional capital that we were charged with investing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just more reps into your valid is, is something that builds with expertise in, in any space. Um, and then I think when you do move someone to a new project, whether it's a new client or a new aspect with a certain client, providing the right type of support and ensuring that the right resources are there and then ensuring that this person has the ability to ask for additional resources or, or additional, additional types of support, maybe it's additional mentorship or um, a better understanding of time management or something to that extent, like providing what that person needs to be successful in their role is also really important. So not really throwing someone quote unquote into the fire, right? Um, and then lastly, I'll just add that I think underpinning all this is really a culture of excellence, but also a culture of teamwork. And that needs to be underlying um, everything you're doing with the team, because otherwise you lose people. Um, you know, people get burned out. And if there's not really understanding of where the business is going and what you're doing is extremely important to the business, then you start losing before thought of why you're working so hard and what you're working towards. Uh, and that's really important to keep people engaged and to keep people working towards the organization's goal and supporting clients. Very cool. I love what you said about reps. I spent, as I mentioned, I was a yoga therapist for a while uh, and movement. I've done a lot of movement in general and the movement keeps me sane in terms of large workloads, You know, having a ritual around movement. And one of the key things you learn about movement uh, and training the human body is that there's this fine line, there's a Goldilocks of essentially you you want to do a lot of repetition of the same movement, uh, like the Bruce Lee, uh, you know, don't fear the man who's done 10,000 kicks, but fear the man who's done uh, one kick 10,000 times. There's that element of it. But also he was wrong in a sense as well, because the body, you can train your body, you can train your fascia into any repetition but then it gets adapted to that repetition and then you're no longer able to um, uh, do uh, this other different movement. So you also want a different, like a movement diet. And, and as with many things that represent the physical body that we get to use to with the physical body, the mind also works in a lot of those different ways as well. And so that sort of repetition with going over and over on one client um, and getting that muscle memory, uh, but then also keeping it fresh and keeping it new and keeping people challenged is really something interesting as well. Um, okay, so we were talking about R&D. We've talked about Invisible uh, and, and how it's kind of got this operations uh, innovation company. Uh, we've got the bios, biotech. Um, let's take it anywhere. Let's go back to the culture of excellence. Uh, how do you promote a culture of excellence uh, within a company? So from my perspective, this really comes from top down. Um, and in leadership that I really respect are people that, uh, that, that actually work quite hard and that really care about their team. Um, and so people that, you know, you can tell are really doing the same work that they're asking their team members to be doing and leading by example, those are the types of leaders I just absolutely love working for. Um. Leaders, I think, also need to be visionaries. Um, CEOs are incredible entrepreneurial visionaries. Uh, you know, I um, actually, this is a, a better answer to your question, maybe. I started reading the Walter Isaacson um, book on Elon Musk. 
And there's a comment there where um, that um, that talks about like how entrepreneurs in general are actually not risk takers. They're always looking for risk mitigation. Elon is an is uh, an exception to that rule. Cause your risk taker. Um, and you know, I read that and kind of thought about it and thought about the different leaders that I've worked for over try and. Um, and I actually agree with that statement. Like the best leaders I know are the ones that are looking to mitigate to, to mitigate risk over time. They're also not the ones that have developed Tesla or SpaceX. Um, but I think that, you know, to me, the best type of leader are ones that work extremely hard, truly do try to mitigate risk for the team and actually, you know, have a budget, stick to the budget, are focused on sticking to the budget and thinking about like how that should then also drive the type of work they're able to execute on. Um, but there are some people that just kind of care an incredible amount about the mission, about what you're doing, and really motivate the team around them by by virtue of doing so. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's connect that that because what you said about the exception, uh, there's exceptions to all these different rules, and we're, we've been talking about startups, we've been talking about these crazy things like full of myth and legend, and and these people starting things that nobody in their rational mind would start. Um, can you talk more about the connection? between excellence and those crazy bets because it's like if if we all did things rationally nothing like spacex would get done and it seems like humanity is probably about a lot more about these like crazy people on the edge who are doing these things and they're all considered crazy until they reach some sort of level of success um uh but then there's a bunch of crazy people who never leave uh never get success and and uh, all the, a bunch of, can you talk more about like, what is that, what is the connection between excellence and risk-taking? Yeah, well, I, I think this question is a bit of an intellectual exercise. I, I personally think Eonis is an exception to the role and he's an incredible exception. Um, but I, I actually think that, you know, building a company, a structurally sound business mm-hmm. takes a lot of focus on you know, raising capital at the right time, raising the right amount of capital, focusing on the valuation, thinking about your budget and your forecasting, how you're building up your team and being conservative in doing so, assuming that you're going to have the judge of inflation no matter what you do and including that in your budget when you're building it out, being quite focused on operations and being quite focused on how you're spending money, um, ensuring that there's the right runway that you need until you're next planning on raising capital and being conservative and how that raise is going to look. Um, and like, Mm. very methodically running a business. Super interesting. Um, so, so I probably would not be the best space ox employee. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's so interesting because, and, and I didn't mean to say that it needed to look like Elon Musk either, because there's all these different ways that people can be neurodivergent because he's clearly neurodivergent. And I'm always fascinated by the fact that San Francisco has these two bipolar uh, examples of neurodivergence. Like you have the um, CEO tech founders who are all like ADD, HD, Asperger's, all these like highly divergent people. And then you have the homeless people and that's all the whole other end of the spectrum. And they're both there. And there's this bipolar energy to San Francisco. Um, uh, And so you've got, we've got this, you know, just like total exceptions. and but then you said you mentioned being very methodical, and there's a sort of a conservative element to starting a company as well, and conserving the resources and only making the right types of risks. 
And it's just this, it, what I'm trying to get at is that although it's great to have playbooks, it's great to have plans that oftentimes life does not go according to plan whatsoever. Um, and that to really capitalize on, on opportunity, sometimes we need to take risks, but then sometimes we also need to be conservative. And it goes back to sort of a spiritual training for me is that life is infinitely complex and to c try to bottle up life into a little, little bottle that, you know, you give to the person and you say, oh, this is, this is the, this is the answer to your question. This will always be the answer to the question. It's like that life just doesn't work like that. And, and it's constantly evolving, constantly changing. And the only way that we can really survive and thrive is to, is to adapt and change with it. Um, and so you had mentioned operations and, and I want to go back to that, uh, a simple question. What is operations? Yeah, I'll 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 prove that in a second, but just like comment sure. on what you just talked about a little bit. You know, when I think of neurodivergence as it relates to like tech entrepreneurs, I think it's um not exactly how you describe it. I think it's more the willingness to think beyond what exists today and to not accept what exists today as the status quo. Right. And there's like a whole bunch of comments that have always been made about Steve Jobs, who was a visionary in that regard, combined with the true ability to just have less empathy for people <laughs> and to be like extremely focused on the end goal. Uh, yeah. uh, and that's a little bit of a different approach and it might be the right approach for launching SpaceX and Tesla and Apple and creating these truly incredible businesses and it's like undoubtedly changed our civilization. I think it's also a different type of approach than you might think about for the CEO of different types of businesses outside of tech, right? And so that's that's my comment. There, um, we can we can move on to operations now. Sure, uh, I mean it was is great comment. You're absolutely right. Like there's, and that goes back to what I was saying of essentially that the that that you can't put it into a playbook. And some things that work for some people, they don't work for other people. Some companies that does work for, to do various things. Sometimes it doesn't. Uh, and if you look at the Fortune 5,000 companies, there's tons of different examples. And I'm sure there's an average and a mean. And and it, it just it's it starts with where you are. It starts with where whoever whoever is doing what. Like not not looking at Elon Musk and saying, oh, that's what I have to be in order to be successful. But that's that's like the common like that's what the collective consciousness kind of pushes on people to be to like fit this mold of something else that doesn't really fit you. So it's always important to start with where you are, I think. Um, if you want to comment on anything there, I'd love to hear it. Otherwise, we'd love to d jump into that oh. question of what is operations? Yeah. Um, so operations looks incredibly different depending on the business stage and size and type of business. Operations for an early stage biotech business um, is like at its very basic level, hiring people, managing them for an HR operations platform. Ensuring that your technology can run. Um, and that's like fairly basic hardware, fairly basic software, like Zoom and Slack and DocuSign, a basic CRM, a share rate sort of mechanism, um, some cybersecurity. A lot of the work, all the work that we're doing that relates to drug assets, we outsource, right? So it, we're really just running your business. Um, and you can kind of make our product any widget in a sense. Um, and then the work we're doing every day is talking about how to do work on this widget, but we're not actually doing the widget work. We outsource that piece. Um, and that's common across 
all early stage biotechs because you're simple, basic organizations and you don't have like a built out lab. Those are expensive to build and expensive to run and maintain and simply don't make sense for early stage biotechs. Um, so you're also been thinking about like how to manage accounting. Um, then though that is similar to like IT or to legal, where to a large extent, I think early stage biotech companies are fairly similar in outsourcing that sort of expertise until you get to a certain stage and it makes sense to bring on a full-time controller, a full-time head of IT, a full-time uh, general counsel. Um, but when you're thinking about early stage businesses, you're really prioritizing in the biotech space, you're really prioritizing the drug development that you're doing. Um, so you're working with a lot of external resources where you can kind of tap into their expertise when you need it. And then as you build up the company, you bring those resources in house one by one. So as a CEO of Oviva, my role is like identifying the vendors that are right for our business in this, at this period, in this stage of time, um, working with them and managing them for the business and overseeing the quality work that they're doing, the timelines they're delivering on, um, building and owning the budget and ensuring that we're working according to our budget. And if not, you know, rapidly understanding why we're not and fixing that. And working very closely with the CEO on strategy for the business, um, how that influences operations, but then also thinking through, you know, how to, how to assist in kind of guiding strategy and where the business lives on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you mentioned that operations at this early stage is kind of just creating widgets, although you're, you're outsourcing most of that due to the particularities of biotech. Uh, what does a larger biotech company do, do? Like once they've gotten past the early stage, they validated that it's something that they were working on. Like what does a, um, I'm forgetting the name. What's the big one in San Francisco? Genentech. Um, what, like, what do they do? Do they bring all those things that you were talking about in house once they've gotten to the point where they're default alive? Exactly. Mm-hmm. So they have a legal team in house. They have an accounting team in house. They have an HR team in house. They have an IT team in house. They, um, my sense is they built their own labs, both for work that is not specific to what the FDA would approve. Uh, and then also for work. And these are like separate labs for work that's very specific to what the FDA would review and approve. And it's done at that level of quality. It's a different level of quality. And it's um, more expensive to do work at that level with the F, um, for FDA approval. But both are kind of usually necessary when, when you're working on a drug asset. Um, and then they're also working, a larger biotech is working across multiple drug assets. So I don't know the large genetics pipeline is, but um, in Singapore. Um, and you're then hiring people with different types of scientific expertise. You have a dedicated regulatory group. And then you also have a group that thinks about what happens should the FDA approve your drug asset. So then what happens once you go commercial? So that's a whole sales force, right? All force that builds relationships with doctors that are specific to the indication. Um, and then goes out and talks to those doctors and talks to them about and educates them on the drug asset that's just been approved. But it actually works on commercializing the drug asset in the U.S. and then generally, ultimately, ex-U.S. as well. So you're really building out like a full company that looks extremely different to, uh, to what we look like today. And so let's say that this, this hormone, the synthetic hormone works. What is the first thing that you think you'll bring in um, in-house? Uh, I don't know. There's, there's different business decisions that relate to that. Part of it's budget-based and then part of it's thinking through different aspects of our business that are growing over time. So we strategically have our thoughts and how we want to be building on investing in the business. Um, and that can really take a whole bunch of different pathways and across fundraising and different types of partnerships and different types of pipeline development activities we may look to pursue over time. 
And so, Alan, let's check back in in the year or two. Sure. <laughs> uh, last couple of minutes. Um, uh, is there anything else you think the audience at Invisible should know about, um, you know, given that you're an advisor, anything we should really be thinking about in order to uh, thrive in the next couple of years? Yeah, I would just say that Invisible has an incredible group of people working at the business with really great opportunities to learn new skill sets over time. And I would encourage everyone to take advantage of that. Uh, and then also I'd encourage people to kind of like raise their hand when they need support that they um, need a better hand and, and kind of get um, to ensure that people are really thriving in their roles and getting the types of resources that they need and are able to develop themselves professionally at, at the business. There's such an incredible opportunity to do so. Cool. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, if if any people at Invisible have been listening to you and want to get in touch, what's the best way to get in touch? Uh, I'm at Rachel at Oviva TX Stack. Oh, Happy to chat with anyone. Cool. I'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, Great. You, Rachel. Hey, thanks for tuning into Plain Sight, presented by Invisible. If you liked what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button and consider sharing with your network. And if you're interested in learning more about how Invisible helps teams cut costs and scale, visit our website at invisible.co. See you next time.